Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to E to EWTN Live. This is <laughs> Scripture and Tradition, and we're here to talk about sacred scripture as we know it through the lens of the holy tradition that comes to us from the apostles. And we very much want to uh, have you join in with us if you want during the live program, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call in. From North America, you call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call anyway, but you have to call Country code 1, area code 205, 271-2980. You can also send us your questions and comments via email uh, by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. And finally, you can also come to our live studio audience. We can accommodate uh, some audiences now and love to have you join us. So, we are dealing with the last chapter of my book, Praying the Gospels. We'll be talking about our Lord's call to the fisherman, Simon Peter, and the use of a big catch of fish, a massive catch of fish, that leads to a very important exchange between them. Now, um, we are, uh, you're, you're able, by the way, still to get that book, Praying the Gospels. Uh, Jesus launches his public ministry. Going to EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 526. Eight seven five And this was to help us meditate on the beginnings of our Lord's public ministry. But again, we'll be finishing up this book next week and starting a new book also next week. We'll make the transition. Um, and the next one is part of the same series called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. Now, you can get that at EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 52885. All right, so, uh, and that'll be called Jesus Miracles in Galilee. All right, so we are continuing to deal with Luke chapter 5. And in this meditation, on our Lord rewarding Simon Peter with a catch of fish. Remember that last week we had begun with the first three verses where our Lord is preaching to a crowd in this little cove known as the Cove of the Parables. And he <clears throat> asked St. Peter to let him get into his boat and he would teach from the boat because the water helps project the voice, project sound. 
magnify sound a bit so it, people would hear even better. Now we begin in Luke 5, verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked uh, all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, this is something that uh, we ought to make a couple notes for ourselves. First of all, what our Lord was saying to the crowds, the content of his teaching, is left unstated. We don't know at this point. We will see different areas uh, in the Gospels where the content of his teaching is given. But just as at the uh, synagogue in Capernaum, where he taught with authority, but we don't know exactly what he said. Uh, and we don't know what he said here from the boat. But this is done for the same reason as in Capernaum, that the main point that St. Luke wants to get across, as do the other evangelists, is that before you start meditating on our Lord's words, pay attention to the way that his words made a big impact on the listeners. So it's not so much about the contact, the content of our Lord's teaching affecting us. It's the effect on his listeners. So this is a, a very important thing. And this is uh, one part of it, and especially it's highlighted when you consider that our Lord is a carpenter from Nazareth. This is what people always would ask. We still ask, well, what do you do for a living? Um, common type of thing. And he is giving an order to the fisherman who was born in Bethsaida. Remember, Peter and Andrew along with James and John, are from the town of Bethsaida. And their friend Philip was from there as well, one of the other apostles. <clears throat> Bethsaida is a town right where the Jordan River flows from the north into the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It silts up, of course, in that part of the lake. So it's fairly shallow over in that area by Bethsaida. And Bethsaida means the house of fishing. It was known for its good fishing, and that area had a lot of different fish 
that were fairly easy to catch, but of course they would go into the deeper waters. Now, when it says to go to the deep area, what does he mean? Well, the Sea of Galilee is about 126 feet deep at its deepest point. It's already 683 feet below sea level. So it's half as far below sea level as is Jericho. Jericho and the Dead Sea are 1,300 feet below sea level. But the Sea of Galilee is 683 feet. Now, that makes it a fairly warm place, too. Overall, that's fairly warm uh, in contrast to other parts of the country. The reason it's so far below sea level is that it is part of a very large fault in the Earth's surface that goes all the way from the north at Mount Hermon, which is right on the border where Lebanon, Syria, and modern Israel meet, right at Mount Hermon. And this crack goes all the way and becomes the Jordan Valley, keeps getting deeper in the earth, goes out to the Gulf of Aqaba, in the south of Jordan, and into the Red Sea, and curves to the west into Kenya, and eventually comes, becomes the Olduvai Gorge in Kenya. Very important place for anthropo anthropological research, by the way. So this is a big crack, and that's why it's so low, and it's the cause of a lot of earthquakes in the region still. Not every, they had little ones, but uh, every so often, uh, every 75 to 100 years, there are big earthquakes in the region. Um, they'll mess up uh, buildings in Jerusalem if you're not careful. So, Simon is there. This, this gives you a picture of what, where they are and what's going on. And Simon has been fishing his whole life. And here's this carpenter who's now a rabbi preaching, telling the fishermen to go out. Now, normally, they fish all night. Why? Because the way that they use these drop nets, they take nets on their arms and fling them out, and then they drop over the fish. And you want to fish at night because the fish can't see the nets coming over them. They use, you know, uh, neutral colored uh, nets and the, the fish don't see them. And even though they had fished the professional way all night long, they caught nothing. Now in the afternoon, which is the time that they would normally use for a nice long siesta. This is when they would get their sleep. And here the Lord is telling them to keep working, row out there and go catch fish. Now, they seem to know better. They know this is not a good time to fish, but Simon obeys the master's word. 
and he goes out there and throws his net. Now, it's important to note that the result of obeying Jesus is to get the biggest catch of their lives. This is an enormous catch, so much so the nets begin to break and the boat begins to sink. It just is pouring fish from the net into the boats and they keep pouring them in from the nets into the next boat. It's clearly a miraculous uh, kind of catch. I've, as many of you know, I've been to the Holy Land with 64 groups over the years and almost every trip we get out to the Sea of Galilee and, you know, the local boat owners, the, when we're on a boat, the, the sailors will toss a net over the side and try to catch and they'll tease the folks in the boat saying, well, if you all have any faith, we'll catch some fish. Well, usually we don't. And they, you know, take note of that. And so, uh, but they're teasing, they're teasing. And so they, um, so they usually don't catch a, a fish because again, doing so in the daytime, a couple times they've caught fish, but not very often. But this overwhelming catch that almost sinks their boats, that's something that's quite uh, remarkable. And by the way, uh, they did find a fishing boat in the, uh, that had sunk to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee and they were able to rescue it even though the wood was so waterlogged, it had the consistency of wet uh, cardboard. But they, very clever, the Israelis are so, so clever. Um, what they did is they kept it in styrofoam, eventually took off the styrofoam and they soaked it in a type of liquid plastic and eventually drained that liquid and the plastic stayed surrounding the fibers instead of the water. And now it's well preserved. So you can still see the remnants of that boat and see what, how they, you know, made them. Now, consider what the command that our Lord Jesus had given to Simon. And I want you to think about some of the times when the words of sacred scripture or some personal inspiration is inspiring you to do something that on the surface seems to be absurd. You may have a very, very good insight into the situation and lots of experience to back up your ideas. Uh, you don't want to lightly disregard your human intelligence, your experience, and you don't want to just jump into something uh, in a crazy way. And yet, the idea persists and you feel drawn in a, some mysterious way with a sense of real peace that comes from obeying the words of sacred scripture, obeying God's word in the Bible. 
and uh, or to to obey the inspiration that you feel inside. So what I recommend is that you imagine yourself being somewhat like Simon or his brother Andrew. He's staying quiet through all this, but Andrew is there, or maybe James or John. Be one of the characters in this scene. And imagine being there as the largest catch of your life unfolds before you because Simon was listening to this rabbi and going fishing at the wrong time of the day, namely broad daylight. How do you feel as you start to see this abundant catch? What comes to your mind? And as the number of fish so increases that it's now getting to the point that the boat is about to sink and you're realizing, uh-oh, this blessing is now dangerous. This is a highly risky kind of, you know, fulfillment. What do you think about Jesus? You know, it was, A, he's obviously very powerful, but is he powerful to do us harm? Has this gotten out of control? And is he trying to, to harm us in some way? Or whatever else might cross your mind. Think about what it would be like to have your boat so laden with fish that it's at the edge of the, the water level. So the, the gunnels are down right at water level and starting to ship water because there are waves. And you see this unfold in a way far beyond any of your imagination. You could never have pictured such a catch. This would have been impossible. Speak to Christ. Talk to him about how his, obeying his command is working out for you and your partners. Talk to him about what would he expect you to do next. If this is what he's going to give you, what do you expect next from him? This is a very important conversation. And I recommend that, as in other prayers, you conclude this with the Soul of Christ prayer, which reads, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Let me never be separated from thee. From the wicked foe, defend me. And at the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to thee so that with your angels and saints I may praise thee for all eternity. All right, let's stop there. We'll take a little break, and we'll come back and take a look at the aftermath 
of this big catch. So please stay with us. ready to take a look at the third meditation in chapter 8 of my book. And this is treating Luke again, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. This is the aftermath of this astounding catch of fish. It starts off, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Now, this is... Um, very important uh, after effect. Uh, this is the first time that Simon is now called Simon Peter. We haven't seen that naming, but it's pointing to his new name and his new identity in Jesus. Uh, Jesus will be bestow this identity upon him, and we don't see the Lord give people new identities in the New Testament very much. In the Old Testament, we see it a number of times. So that uh, Abram becomes Abraham when God gives him a new name. And uh, Jacob becomes Israel when God gives him that name. So uh, there are a few times that the Lord changes somebody's name. And Simon Peter is one of those few people whose name changes. And Peter, by the way, was not a common name at all. Uh, I, you know, the Aramaic form of it is Kepha. And, and you see that in the New Testament, it's Kephas, uh, C-E-P-H-A-S, Kephas. Sometimes people say Cephas, giving a softy, but in Greek and Aramaic, it's a hard K sound. And in fact, it, it's so rare, there's only, before St. Peter, there's only one guy who's called Kepha. Uh, we know about him. Uh, we had to read this back when I was in graduate school studying Aramaic, but there is an Aramaic a marriage contract from Elephantini Island down at Aswan in Egypt. And it was found as one guy named Kepha in this marriage contract. Uh, it's pretty obscure, right around the 400s BC. 
that's really obscure and it's not used again. Um, so uh, that we know of. So at any rate, uh, this identity as Kepha or Peter uh, is something that points to this and our Lord will give him that identity a bit later in the gospel in chapter nine when he's at Caesarea Philippi. But already we see some very important elements in Simon Peter. First, we see a willingness to repent. This is one of the reasons I think our Lord was so uh, attracted to Peter. He has this ability to repent of sin. And he recognizes this great miracle, a miraculous catch, but it's something that uh, he says that he's unworthy because he's a sinful man. And it's not as if he were a notorious sinner. There's some people who make their career in sinning, professional murderers, uh, drug dealers, and lots of other folks are professional and public sinners, and they're quite proud of that career choice. Peter's not like that. In fact, when we take a look at something uh, that he has this vision of all these unclean animals and this voice from heaven tells him to take and eat. And he says in Acts 10 verse 14, I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. So he never tried a ham sandwich or some shrimp or anything. He's always refrained from breaking the kosher laws. Um, so he's not someone who is a flagrant kind of sinner. And yet he, even though he's this observant Jew, he still recognizes that he's a sinful man. And that's something that's very, very important. We see this very commonly among saints. A number of saints, beginning with St. Paul, for instance, but also St. Francis of Assisi, St. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of my order. Um, all of these great saints profess themselves as being the worst sinners on earth. And this isn't some sort of false humility looking for a compliment. Uh, some people are like that. Oh, yes, I'm one of the worst people there is. And, no, you're not really that bad. Um, and some people might even say, compared to the rest of us, you're pretty good. But Simon Peter is not comparing himself to everybody else. He knows something of who God is. And this gets at a very important point about all these different saints. The closer they are to God, the more sensitive they are to their failings. The more they know the Lord, 
the more sensitive to sin are they in their lives. While people who are, you know, justify their sins, a lot of people say, well, everybody does it, and it's sort of normal, it's, it's not that big a deal, it's kind of a regular, it's part of what everybody does, and, you know, I've done it a bunch of times, it's not so, I'm not being that bad, it's, it's not good, but it's not so bad. That kind of attitude by sinners blinds them to their sinfulness. They become so accustomed to their sinful behavior that they just take it for granted. It's not that big a deal. But when somebody is closer to God, they are more sensitive to the reality of sin in their lives. And a good example <clears throat> I use applies to a lot of us men in particular, is that when we get dressed, we're usually in our bedroom, of course, uh, it might not be real brightly lit, uh, and you put on a couple of socks, and it's only when you walk outside that you realize, uh-oh, one sock is brown and the other is black. You can't see it in the dark. It's only when you come out into the sunlight. Similarly, you can't detect that uh, you know, your sin when you're in the darkness of your own sinful life. It's only when you come into the light of Christ. I've done that trying to, I uh, went to buy a pair of trousers and I came out, uh, I didn't realize it. I could not see the difference, but they were navy blue. And it's only when I came outside into the sunlight from the store that I could see it was navy blue instead of black. So I had to go back in and exchange it, um, which was easy enough. But still, this is the kind of thing um, that we oftentimes have to deal with in terms of sin. And here we see that through this miracle, he's in the presence of the Holy One of God. And he's afraid to be in Christ's presence. This is something, and again, a lot of times people say, I don't want to be afraid of God. I just. You know, I love him and all that. That's fine. But the closer again you are to God's greatness, the more frightening he can be. When you reduce God to your size, then it's not so frightening. But when you start to see God's majesty and greatness, it can become fairly frightening. And that's why throughout the Bible, when the Lord shows up or when one of his angels shows up, he has to say again and again, fear not, fear not. The Lord's not showing up to, to strike you dead. He's showing up to do something else, but his presence is frightening. So try to imagine yourself as being Simon Peter. You saw this great catch and you are afraid. And then you hear Jesus say to you, fear not, I will make you fishers of men. Fear not. And this is something that uh, we see how our Lord wants to extend to us a kind of comfort. He wants to ease our fear 
And we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we experience our Lord comforting us or causing us uh, fear? And are we willing to let go of the fear and follow what Jesus says? And when he challenges Peter and says, I will make you fishers of men, instead of being a fisherman, he'll be a fisher for other people. He'll be able to go beyond his past abilities and past experiences and come into this mission. And this is one of the ways that God works. He takes us where we are and brings us forward so that we see somebody like St. Peter is still the patron saint of fishermen. He still is. But he's also this great evangelist of people. St. Joseph is still the patron saint of carpenters, but he's also a protector of the church. St. Arnold is the patron saint of beer makers, not because he promoted drunkenness, but he was promoting a healthy kind of uh, alternative to water, which was very polluted in his days. And um, he never wanted people to be drunk, but he wanted them to be safe. St. Hubert is the patron saint of hunters, and he's you know, out there to go hunting for souls, while St. Giles is the patron saint of protecting animals from hunters. I, I, I hope I get to heaven and get to meet the two of them and see how they get along. That would be very interesting to me. But think about your own life and all that you are and give it over to our Lord. Say, Lord, this is what I've got. This is my ability. This is what I know how to do. And I give it over to you. And I recommend another prayer by St. Ignatius Loyola called the Sushi Pay. He makes it in the spiritual exercises. And in this prayer, it says, Take, Lord, receive my liberty, my understanding, my memory, my entire will. You have given me all that I have and possess, and I return it all to you. Lord, everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your life and your grace. That is enough for me. This is a very, uh, 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 very important uh, kind of prayer. And make that your own prayer and say, Lord, here's the abilities I've got. I give them to you. We, we sing about that at Christmas time with the little drummer boy. And there's so many other ways that we can do that. Okay. All right. Let's take a caller at this point. We have... Jim in Hampton, Virginia. Jim, what can we do yeah. for you today? I wanted to, do you have any idea of the uh, approximate population of uh, Galilee and the surrounding area when Jesus and the apostles were ministering there? I, I'm not uh, seeing specific numbers. It would probably, you know, from what I do know, it would be, a couple hundred thousand 
up in the north, maybe a bit more, but there weren't very many large towns uh, that were occupied by Jewish people. The Jewish people lived in lots and lots of villages. Capernaum may have been a town of, you know, a couple thousand. Uh, that would be a larger town. Nazareth was a town of only 300. Uh, and there were lots of villages like Nazareth of a few hundred scattered around here and there. Capernaum um, is, uh, you know, a, a town um, that would, um, you know, like I said, been about four or 5,000, but Chorazin would have been maybe 1,000. Uh, so you, you would, if you added them all together, the only big cities were uh, primarily occupied by Gentiles. Um, and uh, Scythopolis, for instance, uh, which is down uh, south of the Sea of Galilee, um, where the Jezreel Valley goes into the Jordan Valley. And that would have been a bit bigger, you know, maybe 10,000. But, you know... It'd be, I'd say the, the region would have a couple hundred thousand. Jerusalem was a big city. Jerusalem had a couple hundred thousand people. And then lots of villages uh, all over the place. Um, but, uh, and Caesarea, which was mixed Roman and Jewish, would have been a good-sized town, maybe 30,000. So th that's as much as I can guess at at this point. Um, but I haven't seen a good study of approximate population at that time. But it would have been, you know, people all over the place, but not huge crowds. Does that help? Uh, that yeah. would help in terms of them seeing themselves as a remnant and not that many of them, that kind of thing, if yeah. they were scattered. Yeah, yeah, like you say, in small towns, lots and lots of small towns. All righty, thank you. As a matter of fact, all around the Sea of Galilee, there were about uh, 15 towns or so. No, so it's not, not huge. All right. All right. Let's, let's uh, go to Anthony in my hometown of Chicago. Anthony, what can um, we do thank, for you? Thank you for taking uh, my calls, Father Pacwa. I'm going to be... Hello? Yes, yeah, you're on. I'm, we're listening oh, to yeah. you, Anthony. Yes, I'm going to be as brief as possible. I would very much like you to correct me if I am not correct in how I counsel gay people that I come across in, mm -hmm. in my life, either mm -hmm. co-workers, friends, or so. Mm -hmm. When we enter into conversations of, of, of him or her being gay, mm -hmm. I advise them. Uh, I tell them that, first of all, God does, God does not hate you because you are gay why mm -hmm. he created you like that or allowed you to be like that, nobody can answer. And yeah. then they ask me, well, am I going to hell for being gay? I tell them that God's grace is completely, he showers you with his grace, but you must do all you can with his grace to not to put it into practice. God mm -hmm. loves you but hates the act mm -hmm. that is done in being gay. Am I correct in that, Father? Yeah, that, that would be, and, and by the way, that would be true of, you know, being heterosexual, that just because you're heterosexual doesn't mean that 
anything that you do is therefore okay. That, you know, part of the, and you have to see this in terms of the, the whole of the human experience, that uh, we are overly focused on the sexual, and we see it apart from the, its purpose. Uh, we talked about this recently on uh, the, the program uh, last week with Father Milady. Uh, we have to see that the purpose of human sexuality is the procreation of children and union between a, a, a man and a woman. And this is a very, these are very important things that we, we have, just like our food appetite. Let's use that as an example. Our food appetite is very good. We want to eat tasty food, but food is meant for our nourishment. It has another purpose. Good flavor in the food is a great benefit. But if I eat only to try lots and lots of different flavors and I don't pay attention to the way that food is meant to nourish me, then I would I have the great risk of eating unhealthily, eating too much of the wrong things, and I'm so focused on flavor that I don't pray, pay attention to the purpose of food, which is to strengthen my body and keep it healthy. And the same thing is true of sexuality. If you focus only on the pleasure of sex and you don't have a sense that this is meant for the procreation of children, that's its primary purpose, but also for you know, this lifelong union between a, a man and a woman, you're going to miss elements and, in fact, have problems fairly similar to those of people who overeat. So these are some of the things that we can consider, and that applies to everybody's use of sexuality. We have to keep it focused on the purpose that it has by nature and that God has given it. And another important thing, too, is simply become friends. You know, engage uh, people with same-sex attraction, homosexuals, Engage them seriously and become friends and let the conversation not just be a one-time thing about the, the facts of our faith, but part of an ongoing relationship so that you say you love them, but you also become a friend who does. And that will also be a big help. Okay? All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of your questions and comments and emails, so please stay with us.
a couple things I uh, just want to mention to you. First, uh, be sure to join me for a very special EWTN Live uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. During that show, what we'll do is take a special look at the newest episode of the EWTN TV series called They Might Be Saints. And then I'll have a conversation with the producer, Michael O'Neill, about the cause for the beatification of the servant of God, a stigmatist and mystic named Rhoda Wise. And we'll especially talk about her interaction with 19-year-old Rita Rizzo, who later became EWTN's Mother Angelica. So that's a very important thing. Secondly, um, we want to pray for the people of Highland Park in Illinois. It's one of the northern suburbs of Chicago. It's a fairly affluent suburb. People have done quite well for themselves to move up there. And yet someone who at least by initial reports, was apparently something of a disturbed person, went up on a roof and killed six people and shot many others. Um, this, is, this is horrible. A, a child ate all the way up to someone in their 80s. Uh, this is horrible. And it's part of this increasing violence in our society. We've seen great increases of violence. There are lots of reasons for it. Our entertainment tends to be very violent and with lots of on-screen violence. And we also have um, a lot of other factors like broken families, drug usage. These are factors. And we, we, have, we have had, over the last 50 years, uh, the legalization of killing children in the womb, dismembering most of them. And I think that that has an effect on making us more coarse and more accepting of violence. Um, why we, we cannot teach the Ten Commandments in our public schools. Um, wide variety of things. Uh, you know, all, and there are many factors we all have to consider and pay attention to those people who are disturbed in our society and see what we can do to help them, um, but also to be people who are very willing to stand up against such violence. Um, this is a very important element of our society right now, and we have a lot to work on. All right, we have a, an email here from Arcadius. That's a very interesting name. You don't see that very often. Um, Arcadius says, Hi, Father Mitch. You mentioned this, and I relate with it. I'm in my 40s and afraid of relationships for fear of the premarital sexual immorality, which is one of the reasons I've always flopped. 
I've had relationships before that I believe still haunt me for my ignorance. My question is, how can a Christian realistically date without being lured into fornication? It's not just a male or female issue. We're all weak in this area, let's call it as it is. Arcadius, well, you're, you're right. Um, I know of these kind of things being initiated by men and by women, you know, and um, I'm, uh, it's become something that is uh, almost expected. Um, when I dated, you expected a good night kiss, but now people expect, you know, a lot more intimacy at early stages in the relationship. And this is, this is a very important problem. I think, you know, we have, we have to work with our younger generation of folks to help them change that expectation. It, uh, you know, I don't know how we change that. I think, uh, again, it's looking at sexuality apart from its purpose in procreation. It's, you know, in some stages of these relationships, it's almost like kicking the tires before you buy a used car. And, you know, you just sort of take it for a quick spin to see how it works. Um, there's that. And, of course, people are attracted to it. But we also have to pay attention to the facts that that kind of relationship, you know, puts a disturbance in the romantic quality of a relationship. And it doesn't enhance the relationship uh, being long-lasting. It, it's, you know, the, the, there's a higher rate of um, divorce among those who live together before they're married. Before they're married. Uh, it doesn't make for, you know, great satisfaction. There, there are other factors that have to go into it. And so it, this is also something where even in the dating websites that call themselves Catholic, you know, the four Catholics, this is also a problem. And, you know, um, I think we priests have been too reluctant to address it when we're helping couples prepare for marriage and dating. And um, parents as well have to address this in the way they set expectations uh, for their children when they're very young. And so these, it has to be a whole, whole change. And then I have an email from John in Omaha, Nebraska. Father Mitch, I have a question about an apparent contradiction. Jesus said when a man, uh, a man sins when he merely looks lustfully at a woman, yet I understand that the church teaches that the so-called same-sex attraction is not a sin if one does not act upon it. It would seem that same-sex attraction by any reasonable definition would sometimes include lustful gazes. The idea that same-sex attraction is not sinful as long as it's not acted upon seems hard to reconcile with what Jesus said about a man looking, uh, viewing a woman lustfully. Would, 
would Jesus said not also apply when the people are the same sex? Yes. Looking at anybody lustfully means that you are looking at them to use them. That's the nature of lust versus love. You want to use the other person for your own pleasure. And whether it's somebody of the same sex or the opposite sex, looking to look at somebody for your own use and your own pleasure is sinful no matter what. We're not there to use people. We're to love them and accept them with their own inherent dignity. That's what's key. All right. Thank you for your calls and emails and for being with us. May the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll be talking tomorrow night about the way that the Lord used uh, Ms. Wise, Rhoda Wise, to help bring about Mother uh, to Jesus and then eventually start this network. And she started with the idea that uh, the Lord wants us to give generously instead of have commercials and stuff. So we ask you to please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. Mm -hmm.